Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen. My next guest has a soon-to-be-released book. It's called Friends with Issues. She is a three-time Emmy nominee and the former editor-in-chief of both Seventeen Magazine, yes, that Seventeen Magazine, and Soap Opera Digest, now segueing into her debut women's fiction. Author Meredith Berlin joins me. Meredith, welcome to the show. It is so cool to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm excited. Oh, yeah, me too. Me too. I am a little ways into this book, and it is such an addictive read, I would say, because I'm just really being introduced to your three main characters, Brooke, Elizabeth, and Susan, three friends who have made their mark on Manhattan, but are now dealing with really different issues. Um, Brooke is dealing with just a lot of problems at home with her marriage and career and her work. Elizabeth is dealing with a very staggering diagnosis of MS. And Susan is just trying to find herself, I guess. She's kind of like trying to figure out like who, like, like who she is. And I am just so hooked reading this thing because I want to learn more and more about why this thing, who's this person, what's going on here? What went into just crafting the characters and the world that they inhabit? Well, I wanted to write about three women who were, had already been successful. They had made their mark on Manhattan. They had the big houses. They had the children. And, you know, and they were very privileged as a result of either making the money on their own, having strong careers, and also the men that they married. But they're in their 40s now, and they're at a crossroads. You know, do I want to continue to live the way I am? Can I continue to live the way I am? Do I really love my husband? Is this the kind of sex life I want to have? And um, yeah, I knew women like that. But what happens when you're writing is that, you know, you're thinking of certain people, but over time they take on a life of their own. Um, so, so that's where that came from. And I do believe that when you come to your 40s, if you've been married for a while, that sort of, you know, you get to that point where you say, how much time do I have left? It's, it's middle age. Do I want to continue to live the way I'm living? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Hmm. Where we're starting the book that they're already kind of at their success, you know, their hero's journey is almost like complete. How does that change the viewpoint of the characters? We don't have really see them achieve that goal because it's already done now they're thinking about what's next so for example one character brooke is thinking about taking her hobby which is making one-of-a-kind pieces of jewelry and do i do i go to the next level do i have the guts in me to put myself out there and and be bigger than having this as a hobby What's going on in my marriage? Yeah, I, now that my, my career as a lawyer is over, I'm looking at this man I've been married to all these years. Who is he? And, and do I want to stay in this marriage that doesn't have much love? I'm, I'm sort of the mother here. This is how I want to spend the rest of my life. You know, my career, it's over, but I don't want to stop working. Well, what's this thing that gives me joy every day? Making jewelry. For Elizabeth, who has multiple sclerosis, and she has been a big editor, She's now at home taking care of her kids. She's getting a little bored with it. She's being asked to take over a new magazine, re reimagine it. Do I have enough stamina to do this? Do, do I want to get back in the game? Do I want to be challenged? Can I physically be able to do it? That's sort of her 
That's, that's her challenge. And for Susan, um, Susan has a couple things going on. Susan's interesting because I really don't know people like Susan specifically. But, and so she became my favorite character. She was a big magazine executive also on the sales side. Her husband's a multi-multi-millionaire. And she's a foodie. And she loves food. And she's always harbored this idea of becoming a restaurant owner, which is so different than anyone, you know, would ever think of her. The other thing is that she's not thin and she's looking at her body and she's like, I don't, I don't look like this anymore. And so she has this ongoing other thing going on of trying to lose weight. And also her marriage is very interesting because she loves her husband, but she doesn't want to sleep with him. And so through all this is one man, his name is Nick, and he is related to each of these. He has a relationship with each of these women and um, what they're going to do, where are they going to go? It's also about um, how money doesn't protect you from the unimaginable. So when something terrible happens, yes, you have more resources than someone who doesn't have money, but you still have to deal with the worst that life can throw at you. Exactly. Um, I want to ask a little bit of, of, about Susan because I was curious. You mentioned that you really didn't know anyone like her. So did this create uh, challenges when it came to making her as a character? Um, was it a challenge to make her? Uh, yes, but fun. Like, you know, it was like she was probably in a certain way the most fun. She's very sassy. Um, she says what she, you know, she, she doesn't really have a filter between her brain and her tongue. I like that about her. You know, I, I got to do that through her. I got to imagine this woman, you know, who was uncomfortable with her body. I, although I have to say we all know women like that, which I would say is 99.9% .9 of all women were never happy with what our body is like. Hopefully that's changing. And um, she's trying to rediscover who she is sexually so so was she hard um i would say she was really fun you know i because i got to like imagine and and deal with all these things that weren't particularly personal to me you know i i'm not a foodie i'm not interested in owning a restaurant um do i like good food yes but i you know it, it's just i got i went places and thought saw things through susan's eyes and that was fun for me I gotta be honest. It is one of my lifelong ambitions to actually own a small coffee shop cafe. Um, oh, there. oh yeah. I mean, I had the whole thing mapped in my head. I was I was gonna call it the Owl House, but that's been taken, and Disney might sue me. But that would be if I ever had the means to do it. I would do something like that because that's you know just it's probably it's probably a lot less fun than I'm than I than I'm imagining it. But I'm sure it could be a blast. I, I think especially with the coffee house, I mean, you know, the real restaurants, man, they're, they're getting killed these days because they're overworking people. And I'm sure you've seen the stories, but, but um, yeah, I, like I said, I got to live her world. I got to do a lot of research on restaurants. I started looking at things differently when I was in a restaurant. So um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed writing her. What about their respective men? Um, what role do they have to play? How do they sort of progress the story? Well, Nick is the most important man. Nick is married to Susan, yet they haven't had a sexual relationship in years. And this is one of those things where he wants to be with her, but she doesn't want to be with him and she doesn't know why. 
because she really loves him and she really respects him. And so that's her sexual journey. Um, Danny and Elizabeth have a wonderful marriage, but, and, and he's, um, he's always supportive of her. He's a strong man. He's, he has no problem being with a woman who has MS. He is protective of her and loving. He's a great guy. And of course, then there's Tripp who, um, is married to Brooke. She met him in college when he was sort of like a local rock star in Harvard Square and he turns out not to be who she married. He's not the man she married. And so, and she's been staying with this guy where she's really taking care of him, but there's nothing else there. I, so, I felt such yeah. a pity for Brooke because, you know, you hear that kind of stuff all the time. So-and-so marries someone and it goes downhill and, you know, Trip, and, and this isn't any, any kind of spoiler, folks. Trip is... You know, he says he's working from home, but there's no real evidence of this actually happening. He's like living off of junk food. He has no involvement with his kids' lives. He's just, he's not really living. He's just kind of existing. So as I'm learning more about Brooke's situation, I thought, man, Brooke, I want to give you a hug. Just, just, just get <laughs> That's interesting that you said that because I spoke to people who want to give her a kick in the butt. So, uh, and yeah. And, um, you're bringing up something really interesting because different people have different reactions to characters. But to me, as long as you are invested in, in them, that's good enough. Mm. But we all know people stick in their marriages too long, you know, way past its expiration date. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially the parts where she's talking with Elizabeth about getting a divorce. I'm like, yes, do that right now. <laughs> I want to ask about investing in characters because, you know, certainly a book can live or die off of the characters really drawing the re the readers in. But to your mind, what makes a real character that people are going to want to learn more about? Um, I think a character who's human. And what, by that, I mean, we, none of us are, are perfect. We all have our flaws. We don't always say what we mean. We don't always mean what we say. We, but, but we have backstories. And I think when you can, even if you dislike the character, if you see what their backstory and you understand where they're coming from, that's relatable. That's, you know, none of us get out alive. None of us have been without trauma. You know, trauma can mean all different things. And, and we are formed by those. We are formed by those things. Um, and so I, I think what happens in my book and what I want my reader to appreciate is that they grow and, and that we all grow maybe and we all have our own different timetables. Hopefully they'll see a little bit of themselves in the characters. But I think a good character is a character who's flawed and, and is human. Did you have to go through a lot of versions of your characters before you came across one that said, okay, this is set, let's write that book? I wrote this in the 90s. It took me a really long time. These characters have some resemblance to who they originally are, but they're so much, they're so deeper. They have so much more spunk and sass and, and dimension to them than they did when I first wrote them. What kept you writing the book? Because like 20 years, oh my God, such like a long time to be working on a book. What kept you from saying, you know, just throw in the trash, forget about it, I'm done? 
Um, so, so I put it away for a very, very long time. And my friend, um, a guy named Robert Rourke, who I worked with at several magazines, had um, written what I thought is a great book. It's called Car Trouble. And we met for dinner one night. And when we were talking, because we were sort of starting out with our books around the same time, I said, I'm going to throw this out. I'm sick of this. I'm taking those piles of pages on the phone. I'm just going to throw it out. And he said, don't. And I, and I said, well, how did you do it? And he said, I was determined. And that just sprung up in my head. You know what? I want to do this. I just have to be determined. I was living in New York. I live in Florida now. And when I moved down to Florida, um, my college roommate lived near me. And she said, I belong to this writer's group you have to join. And they really helped me get over the finish line with this. It became fun. And you know what? A book takes as long as it takes. You know, it can take a year. It can take five years. I've talked to writers who it really spans from like a year to like three decades. It, it's done yeah. when it's done. And there's, you should never feel the pressure to say, okay, if I don't write this in three years, I'm, I'm just going to burn every copy of it and say, forget it. Yeah, my friends saved me. And, and having a lot of readers, you know, your first readers help save you because it's a, a lonely business. And I, those first hundred pages, I went back and forth between saying, this is great. This is terrible. I'm such a good writer. You suck. You know, it, yeah, you know that, that's, and I think that's that way for a lot of writers. The, there is so much doubt and second guessing when you're a writer, because like you said, you go from, this is amazing to, I have no idea what I'm doing. Exactly. Exactly. Did this writer's group that you mentioned that you worked with in Florida, did they give you any real key advice that helped you really finish off this book? Um, yeah. I mean, we read and, and you would read aloud. So they would respond. We give good critiques. We're not mean. You know, that makes a big difference. They'd ask questions. Um, and when I got to that point, which I think a lot of writers, a lot of serious writers do, meaning ser by serious, I mean, you know, they're committed to, the, to doing this. Um, they said, enough already. Just finish it. You're done. Stop toying with it. Okay? You're done. So, yes, they helped me a lot. Yeah. It can be so hard to put it down because you think, oh, wait a minute, let me let me give it one more read through, one more bit of editing. I maybe can fix one little problem or make that thing that really just makes it into a bestseller. I'm still doing that. It's in print. It's coming out on Tuesday, the 24th. I'm still reading this thing and saying, you know, I like it a lot, but I'm looking. Why do you have the word and there? Why don't you put the period over here? You know, you you. The only thing that makes me feel uh, okay about that is everyone that I know who writes anything feels the same way. So yeah, you always want it to be better. It, yeah. it, you need you need someone to say cut. Exactly. Or you need an editor, which is you, of course. You are you are the former editor in chief of Seventeen Magazine and Soap Opera Digest. Going from editor to writer, though, how are you when it comes to like editing your own stuff? Bad. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, 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 it's just not the same. You know, you, you just have too much invested in your own words. When you're editing someone else's stuff, you know where it's going to go. You, you, you see what it needs. You see what it doesn't. Um, one of the things that people will say about writers is that they're um, 
their words are so precious to them. You know, you get rid of a word and it's like, oh, I didn't have that problem because I was an editor. But you, when you are writing the editing function, you're doing it, but you still need someone else to do it and do it also, you know, to keep, to keep doing it. Because in the end, you just look at the thing so many times and after, and, and, and you have so much vested of yourself in it that you, you make yourself crazy. When, when you're editing a piece for a magazine, you know, it's not your heart. It's someone else's and you're, you're, you're shaping it to be right for your readers. Um, that's different. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to my readers too, but it's different. It's mine. Yeah. And as the editor, uh, you know, like you said, it's not, it's not your heart. You're just the one just like cutting it up. Um, so that that's kind of easy. It can be just like very dispassionate. Be like, yeah, you know, cut this out, delete this, remove this entire thing, change the lead, change the headline. How is it though going from working in magazines where brevity is really key to writing a right. novel where you gotta be, you know, elaborate? It's freeing because a lot of times when you're editing something to fit space, which as you know, in a, in a magazine, you know, if something you only have space for 5,000 words and that's it, you can't go on. So there's a certain amount of freeing in, in as a writer writing a book that, you know, you can put a lot more into it. Um, but again, it gets a magazine is a collaborative experience. I like working with people. I like being part of a team. I like bouncing ideas off of other people. This is a much more lonely and scary, you know, proposition. It's great in that it's only you. It's terrible in that it's only you. And I'm a people person. You know, I, I would sit in a, in a, uh, making a magazine and say, what do you think of this cover? I'm going with that cover. Someone else would say that cover stinks. Okay. All right. Well, let's go back and forth on it. Okay. We have a decision next. When it's just you and you, not so easy. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. What would you say was the biggest lesson or the big, or the biggest shift you had to make in writing this book? I think it was a commitment to finish it. Mm. I think it was overcoming um, self-doubt. And for me, I would say really the biggest hurdle, and I didn't think about it till afterwards, was having multiple sclerosis. I do have multiple sclerosis. And I, I never thought, um, I don't think about it much. I never thought that it hindered me, but it did a lot of times. I want to ask about that because uh, one of your characters in the book, Elizabeth, also right. has MS and she's still, it sounds like she's kind of still in the early stages because they're still learning just, you know, how bad it's going to be for her. Why have a character with the same condition that, that you're dealing with in the story? So that's really interesting. Um, I did not set out this book saying, and one character will have MS. I just started writing. And I think that it was through Elizabeth that I learned a lot about myself and this disease that I had, but I did not set out to say, I have a, I'm going to make a character have MS. Um, it just flowed. And she helped me a lot. She helped me understand my own limitations and my own challenges, as well as um, the best advice I ever got from a doctor was just live your life. And so I, uh, she was great for me. She was cathartic for me. 
and hopefully, you know, it she'll allow readers to see what it's what it's like for someone to have it. You know, but you know, the truth is we all have our limitations. We all have something that holds us back. That was that mine was physical. Yeah, yeah. Um I have a little familiarity with this because my grandmother also had MS and I think the thing that was hardest for her was just knowing there's no turning back from this. There's no like, you're going to wake up one day, it's all going to be gone, you'll be back to normal. It was just that dealing with it as things progressed. How is Elizabeth handling it, given that she is still early in the process? Well, Elizabeth has relapsing remitting, which is what I have. So uh, what that means is you will have flare-ups, but then you go back to being okay. The thing about, and then there's progressive, which is you progressively get worse. Um, People who have progressive MS typically are the ones who are in wheelchairs, who are um, sometimes even have feeding tubes, who, who are in really bad shape. There's no guarantee that someone who has my kind of MS won't end up with progressive. The way that you, the way that I, because I think everyone is different with this disease, deals with it is you try not to think about it too much. You do live your life. MS is a disease where um, when you're starting to have symptoms, you cannot push through. You have to stop. So for me, the worst symptoms are losing my um, my words and my speech. You can imagine how hard that is as a writer. Okay, so one day now I'm talking to you right now and I'm fine. Tomorrow I might be trying. I might be at a, a restaurant placing an order and I can't communicate to the server what I want. Um, but how do you do it? You know, a lot of people. Everyone has something, right? You you. And also, again, you know, I keep going back to my family. I, I have a line in my book that actually came from um, something my husband said when I was first diagnosed. I kept saying, what if I end up in a wheelchair? What if I end up in a wheelchair? And he kept saying, you're not going to. You're not. And I, I what? And he said, well, then I'll push the wheelchair. So that was, you know, that was basically someone saying to me, I will love you anyway. You're safe with me. That's a big deal. Man, man. What a great guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. Sometimes not so much, but you know, but that but in his heart of hearts he is. Yeah. Now was he involved in the uh, the, uh, the writing process? Well, you know, in the beginning never. Um and and for all those it took him 20 years to read the book and and that was, you know, yeah. <laughs> but there when I was rewriting there were some scenes that I needed help from from a man's point of view and he helped me with that i would ask him questions we would act out certain scenes so yeah he was very helpful that way you know why did you want to write this book in the first place you know especially after so many years working in you know working with words working in print you know i i once saw an interview with um one of the actors from um hamilton and it was like why do you why do you act and it's sort of like, because I have to, you know, it's just part of who I am. It's some people, some people just have to do certain things. It's who they are. I mean, I wrote my first book when I was nine years old. My, I had many, many cats. My father was always bringing home these cats. The cats always had all these babies. My mother didn't want the cats in the house. They were living in the garage. We'd bring them in, we'd bring them out. 
And then one day, um, my parents took the cats and gave them away uh, because my sister had very bad asthma. And I was devastated. And so I took out my green pen and my loose leaf paper, and I wrote nine pages called My Cats. And it was cathartic, right? It was cathartic for me. And so I learned that writing was the way that I could communicate to others and also to um, soothe my own heart. So it was just a have to. Yeah. Okay. When, okay. When is this uh, getting published? Uh, alas, too late. <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> Maybe it'll show up somewhere. Or so. I, I just think, it, I, I can't get over how cool my parents were to get rid of those cats. However, I will say that we kept getting cats after that. We, you know, I have a cat, I have a cat right now. I'm a dog person and a cat person. I've always had, we always had a million animals, but they just keep showing up. So now they're mine and no one's giving them away. You know, one thing I've seen with the writers I've spoken to is, is you all have that book that you wrote when you were like 12 or what have you. And you're like, it was an embarrassment. I hated it. I want to see it. I want to see it get published. They may need to rewrite it. There you go. Hey, go for it. Seriously, go for it. Um, one thing I noticed in reading the early chapters is there's a lot of intertwining with the stories because we'll see Brooke in one scene and then the next chapter she's talking to Elizabeth in another scene and so on and so forth. There's a lot of just com combination here. Did you have to really plot this out carefully or were you able to just go? I just went. I went, I just wrote the whole thing and then I went back and put it together. So, and that's what a good editor can do. So when I was, when I used to, um, a, a lot of times I did interviews, like for example, soap opera digest also. And after I did the recording and after it had been just transcribed, I literally took a scissor and cut pieces apart and then put them together where they belonged. So, you know, think of it as, as doing a very, very long interview, writing this whole book and then saying, okay, this belongs here, this belongs there, you know, let's make this, let's take all this clay and make it into a statue. So that's, I am not, I did not outline, I'm not an outliner, um, I just wrote. And, and I, you know, and, and then it came together. And, and my, for, and the form of the book is, is pretty, um, it's not uncommon where you, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing different points of view different characters, but they are all related. And they all know each other. There's nothing, you know, they, two, two of them are best friends and they've been best friends forever. And um, one is someone that they both know one, you know, very well. So these women are intertwined in their lives. You know, I'm tempted to call nonsense on the fact that you did not plan this out because this is so carefully written. It wasn't. I, huh. I wrote the characters. Um, I did, you know, there was some interplay, of course, where, you know, you go from now it's Brooke's time and now it's Elizabeth's time and, and that kind of thing. But um, not, no, there was no outline. I had an idea of who these women were. They became very different as I, they were, you know, they became, they became their own people. And after a while, they started to write themselves. And it was only after I went back as an editor that I was able to um, make the story, mm, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, 
more readable and then had other readers and and uh, editors you know friends look at it and and make their suggestion so that's how I went mm. I, I'm not an outliner I don't know I don't know how to write that way I'm sure it's a great way to do it it's just not who I am exactly oh yeah there's there's always like really like two camps you're either a planner or a pantser and so you're the pantser you just go off and see your pants and you see where it goes um you mentioned earlier about um your trick with like doing the interviews transcribing them and then cutting them to pieces did you wind mm-hmm. up going going back to your uh, your bag of tricks as an editor with any other parts of the book yeah um i did there well first of all what i i put up a, a whiteboard to keep the continuity together for myself. I also put pictures up of certain people that I, you know, sometimes they were actors, sometimes they were people I cut out from the magazine as I imagined them to be. And then when I would go over things and and something was tough, yeah, I literally took a scissor, cut it out and, and, and would scotch tape it to another place where it made more sense. Hey, it worked for me. Worked for me in magazines, you know. Yeah. it's what works. Exactly. Exactly. Works before you do it again. You mentioned that you used to live in New York. And of course, that is where this book is set. Did this kind of like take you back to the old days living in the cities? Oh, yeah. So, so I lived in New York City for 18 years. Then after my children were, um, when my oldest was four, we moved to um, the northern suburbs of New York, uh, Westchester County. And then one of my characters um, goes off to Hollywood. And when I was at Soap Opera Digest, I was um, back and forth to L.A. every two weeks. I had a whole other group of friends there because half the soap. I I was at Soap Opera Digest in the 80s, which was really a big time for soaps. It's when the the nighttime soaps happened, you know, Dallas and Dynasty and Flamingo. All, All those were there then. So I was going back and forth. So the the. The drawings of New York City, the draw, when I say drawings, I mean the way I wrote about New York City in the 90s, the way I wrote about the northern suburbs, Westchester County during then, and, and the way I wrote about Hollywood then are very real. I know every one of those streets. Every street that I mention is real. When I describe the Upper West Side of, of um, Manhattan, you know, I know that like the back of my hand. When I describe the Upper East Side, I live there. I know these, I'm writing with a lot of authority about these places. LA, I, I can, you know, draw you a map. Wow. I love when a book can help you travel just by taking you to all like the various, like you said, the side streets, the small like, hole in the wall places. I love a book that can just take you places. Me too. Me too. And so that was really, um, that was very important to me. So that when, when Brooke is going to a particular place in, um, oh, I can't remember the name of where she is, but it, it, uh, Bel Air, you go through the gates of Bel Air, you, you go through this winding road. This house is a mid-century house, you know, right by the canyon. I've been in that house. I know what I'm talking about, you know, I, I, as I'm describing in my head, when when uh, um, one of my characters lives in a particular house in 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 Westport, Connecticut, which I don't know a lot of people realize this, but Fairfield County, Connecticut, which is Greenwich and Westport, those areas, 
abuts Westchester County. So I have been in these houses. I have seen these lawns. I have seen the cars. These are very real to me. Did it bring me back? Yeah, it, it brought me back to those places. Um, and I felt, I felt very um, an expert, for lack of a better word, on those areas and those people. Where is this book going? I don't want to give away the ending, of course. No spoilers, you know. Um, but where is the book going? It's going to a place where um, they, these women make decisions about they take the big risks. They're willing to finally say, I don't want to live this way. I am going to take a risk for something else. And then something shocking happens and they have to readjust and they have to decide um, this life-changing thing that happens that, that affects all of them, how they're going to move forward afterwards. And to me, that's really, that's really real, right? We, we are, we're set in our ways. Our lives are going along. We're just fine. Then all of a sudden, something awful, tragic, unimaginable, or, or even on the happy side, you win, you, know, you win the lottery, whatever. Something changes big, and you have to adapt to it or not. That's what happens to these women, but they do change. Let's talk about release day because, as I mentioned before, the book is coming out on January 24th. It's your first book. What are you going to do on release day? What am I going to do on release day? Oh, I'm having a great little party for friends and family at a very cool, very small, at a very cool restaurant down here called um, Dada. And it's um, in an old house. And it has a fabulous bar. They, um, they're devoted to Dadaist art, which is sort of like um, Dali. And it's sort of like art should make comfortable people uncomfortable and uncomfortable people comfortable. So it, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it, it's wonderful. And it's very cozy. And we're just going to hang and celebrate and um, be together. My closest to my closest. Nice. I like that plan because because I find that some writers, when release day happens, are so nervous about it. They're like, "I'm gonna throw my phone down a well and lock myself in the closet and not come out until the end of the year." Oh yeah, I, I've done that already. I'm still doing that. But then, <laughs> but you know, I, I I was taught that always celebrate the good times because you never know when the bad times are gonna have, come. Exactly. And I just did not. I wasn't going to spend my um, my pub date. Um, watching TV and going to bed. Exactly. Yeah. Well, plus, you know, having worked on two of the biggest magazines in the nation for years, I imagine this is just like old hat for you. It is not old hat for me. I've never written, I've never written a book before. I've never done a solo before. Um, I'm putting myself out there, you know, pass, fail, succeed, whatever. It's me. So, it's different. It's very, very different. But in the end, you know what? I'm like every other writer who's published. I did it. There you go. Are you going to do it again? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's like get through this one first. I, 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 do I come up with ideas all the time? Yeah. And I, you know, I look around and I see people and I'm like, that's a good story. I just listen, you know, I think writers are really good listeners. And, and, and especially if you listen to people that you don't know 
that those people are very interesting. You start to engage with them and everyone has a story and then that takes you off someplace. Yes, I, I have some ideas and um, yes, I, I very much want to do that. And actually with my writing group, you're asked to read each week. And so, you know, I've been, I've been playing with a lot of different ideas. Okay. Well, speaking of reading, uh, we got a special treat for you folks. We're going to read you a small excerpt from the book by the author. She's going to give you a little, little taste as to what this book has in store for you. Okay. I will try this. Just remember, sometimes my voice, MS-wise, might go, but I know that you're going to be understandable. So this is chapter 40. And in this chapter, um, my character, Elizabeth, who has MS, is not well right now. And so she's at home in bed and she's being administered IV steroids, which she doesn't like. And at the same time, she's just learned that her best friend, Brooke, is moving to Hollywood, starting a new business. And, you know, that makes her feel, feel. And she's also reflecting on the last conversation they had, which was about sex. And, and that's another theme in this book where these women are now finally deciding what they like about sex, what they don't like, and asking for it. Because my feeling is that we have asked for equality in a lot of areas of our lives, be it in the boardroom or equal pay or, or childcare, but not so much when it comes to what we want sexually. So here we go. Elizabeth was swirling with emotion. Steroid drips made her swing between wanting to scream and wanting to cry. Her best friend was moving to California and starting a new business while she was lying here in bed. She thought about her sex conversation with Brooke. From the time she'd first gone to bed with the boy, she was always trying to prove something. I can be smart and sexy. Try me. I dare you. See if you can handle me. That was what she had been trying to get across to the men she met. The 1970s had been that way, at least for her. Women were still expected to play hard to get. Teenage girls were called whores if they fooled around with anyone other than their boyfriends. Of course, no one slut-shamed the boys. Elizabeth hated those words. Sluts, whores, promiscuous. Who are these people to define others with such judgmental, ugly words? She rebelled. Why couldn't she have sexual freedom and be respected for her brain? That had been her quest, but it was a long road. Even Nick had a hard time accepting who she was in the early days of their friendship. She remembered going with him to a Rolling Stone concert at the Palladium in 1978. She'd been wearing an eyelit white blouse with a, without a bra. Why do you dress like that, he asked. He wasn't angry. He sincerely seemed puzzled. The comment had shamed her. Was he embarrassed to be with her? 20 years later, it still bothered her. Why had she dressed like that? Because she wanted to make a statement. I can be cool, sexy, and smart. I'm adventurous. She didn't explain that to Nick, but a light bulb had gone off. He was right. She didn't have to advertise herself. Thank you. Very well done, yeah. Um, I, I want to like keep reading too because like you said 40 like oh man 40 I'm on like five I got a ways to go here I gotta get <laughs> caught up um I want to ask a bit about the title now because I feel like you know friends with issues that they are friends and they have issues but is there any other meaning behind it 
Um, no, I, I think it's that simple. When I first wrote, it was called "Where the Grass Was Green," where the grass is greener because they were all, you know, wealthy, and this is the area where the grass is greener. Um, and then, uh, you know, I kept playing with this. This is also where my writer's group came into play. And you know what's interesting? I realized after the book was over that Nick, this, this one man that they're all related to, he is a friend that they all have issues with. Even though one character is married to him, one character is his, you know, his lover, and one character is his best friend. He is their friend in a different way, and they all have issues with him. And besides, we all have friends who have issues. Yes, indeed. All right. What do you hope people take from this book? That they know people like these people, that rich people have problems too. You know, I know that sounds kind of like, oh yeah, who's going to feel sorry for them? Well, these people aren't, you know, stratospheric rich, but that that um, we're all just people. We're all just people. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Meredith. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate this. And again, one more time, folks, this book is out through Warren Publishing on January 24th. Get your copy, print, ebook. Go to your local bookstore. If they don't, if they don't have a copy, ask them to order a copy. Ask them to order 20 copies. So, <laughs> that would know, be nice. That would be, that would be very nice. And before we go, where do folks go to learn more about you and check out the works? Um, MeredithBerlin.com. All right, Meredith, well, once again, really enjoyed the conversation and uh, looking forward to the next one. It was a pleasure for me. Thank you so much. This is Matches Malone, and you're watching Citywide Blackout, justice for all. All right, everyone, that'll bring this episode to a close. One more time, January 24th is the big day. Friends with Issues comes out. This one, it's really good. I was totally hooked, and I think you'll be too. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You can get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com if you want to be on the show to recommend a guest or just ask a question about the show. I love that stuff. Get this show wherever you find your favorite podcast and listen to it every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.